Talk RL. Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time, featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talk RL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Arvind Srinivas is a research scientist at OpenAI. He holds a PhD from Berkeley, where he taught the Berkeley Unsupervised Learning course. Arvind, Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Of course, you were our guest back in episode 11 when you were back at Berkeley. And uh, we talked about Curl and Rad and Sunrise and your unsupervised learning course. Uh, and now I gather that you're at OpenAI. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what your what your focus area is there and what your role is there? I am a researcher in the algorithms team at OpenAI. The algorithms team uh, is the team that works on basic research that leads to a new kind of generative models. For example, DALI uh, came out of a work done by uh, folks in the algorithms team. Um, and uh, in the past, like GPT-2, um, image GPT and so on. So my focus specifically is to work on generative models of like modalities other than text exploring like like new possibilities there, new architectures, new modalities, and so on. And so when we look back at your dissertation from Berkeley, you mentioned the main axes of contributions being self-supervised or unsupervised representation learning and self-attention. Are you continuing along those lines with what you're doing now? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's it's difficult to like not take advantage of self-supervised learning anywhere right now in, in deep learning, right? So any kind of uh, anything you do right now uh, definitely gets a big boost if you leverage pre-trained self-supervised representations, uh, whether it be reinforcement learning or generative models or, or language. It, it is the case that ha- having access to a pretty good pre-trained representation uh, can make things a lot more convenient and like like more generalizable for you. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, the work done by Aditya Ramesh, like uh, Dali, uh, Dali 2 that came out recently, uh, if, if you actually look at the architecture, it, it takes a pre-trained uh, clip model uh, and then tries to build a generative model on top of that latent instead of building a generative model from scratch, right? So, and, and what is clip? Clip, you, you can consider the system's kind of like giant self-supervised contrastive learning d- done on like internet scale data. So it's hard to like decouple self-supervised learning from almost anything you do right now. It's it's pretty much part of everything that anyone uh, is building these days. So just like that, uh, similar to that, I'm also leveraging that for my current research. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get started on talking about decision transformer reinforcement learning via sequence modeling. That was Chen et al. in 2021. What are the main ideas happening here? It's very simple. Transformers are awesome. GPTs are awesome. They basically change the landscape of natural language processing. For some reason, reinforcement learning is viewed separately from deep learning in the sense that people, the way people think about RL is, oh, there's this whole literature, uh, Rich Sutton's textbook, dynamic programming, approximate DP, value, value iteration, policy iteration, policy gradients, Q-learning, and so on. And the way we actually use deep learning in RL is to just use it as a function approximator. 
to get you the representations on which you perform the classical RL algorithms. That's just been the way DeepMind started things and everyone's just been doing the same thing after that. There's like several years of work have been put into just making that stack really work. That's fair. Uh, it's, it's kind of work like, you know, Atari, AlphaGo and so on. But now that we have a sequence model are working really well uh, after the invention of the transformer, it is worth rethinking the whole paradigm itself. At the end of the day, what do you actually want from an RL agent? It should have access to what it's done in the past, by which we mean like all the states, actions, rewards, it's seen so far, it's context of the world, it's context of the environment. And it should have access to what it's supposed to be doing, like whatever task the human provides the agent with, and based on this, it should decide what to do next. Ultimately, if if there is a model that caters to this need, that's all you need, right? Um, and for that, it just has to attend to all this information and decide what to do next. In some sense, it has to attend. That's all you need, right? So just like how transformers should attention is all you need, we thought, okay, why not just treat RL as a sequence model and given sufficient data of what an agent is supposed to be doing, it should be able to do it at this time. So if you have a good enough data set of trajectories, and trajectory by trajectories, I just mean a sequence of state action rewards in an environment, you just give that as just like how you give natural language strings like sentences or like images and let the transformer behave like a sponge that absorbs all this data and learns to internalize how the world works and how it gets rewarded for taking different sequence of actions and so on. For example, if it's given a trajectory of the game of Pong, the transformer will internalize that going up, like, like taking the action up means the battle will go up. Or like, you know, if you're near the ball, the paddle has to go down, things like that. Instead of being told to like, hey, you know, like if these sequence of actions will lead you to this value function and so on, like you, you don't have, you don't need all that. So in some sense, you can think of this as the software 2.0 moment for RL, right? Like you let the neural network write the weights for the RL algorithm itself. And uh, that's all it is. So you you do this, you, you take a data set, just train a regular GPT-like transformer that learns to predict the future actions given the past states, actions, and rewards. Test time, you just ask it to get a high reward and it'll just learn to do it. And if you can do this reliably at a large scale, then um, we can like basically leverage every scale uh, large-scale infrastructure that's been built for GPTs and images or DALI and have a similar kind of stack for robotics and control, right? And that, 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 in my opinion, at least, is the future. It's much easier to scale something when there is a whole community of people and investment and resources being put into scaling a particular infrastructure. It's very hard to scale something uh, when you are like a small community around you is the only 
set of people doing that. So I think I said this in the previous podcast itself, like uh, one motivating factor for doing a lot of the research I did in RL is to make RL look more like deep learning. And currently deep learning is just mostly transformers. So it's good that RL also just looks like a transformer. How did this idea come about? The way this project was conceived was I was actually interviewing at OpenAI uh, for a full-time position. And I had some discussions with some people there, like just generally you get, you do research chats, like, you know, to figure out alignment. And I, I talked to Alec Radford and I asked him what is like really the, the way in which he picks problems. So Alec Radford is the uh, first author on GPT-1 to clip. You know, he's done incredible work, you know, considered to be the most successful independent individual contributor at OpenAI. I was very curious how he picks his problems. And one intuition that he gave me was you have to think about like all these like large generative models as distillation of human activity on the Internet baked into a large model. Uh, let me let me break that down. Humans are like like if you look at the way GPT-2 was built and three for that matter, you leverage the fact that humans have curated a lot of content and created a lot of content on the internet in the form of text, right? Like you take news articles or books or Wikipedia pages. It's a lot of human work that was done and put on the internet. And you can take advantage of human ratings like the karma for the post. And you uh, use that as some kind of implicit page rank. And you uh, only take the content that has sufficient karma so that you take good content. So you, you're basically leveraging human activity like rating pages, creating content, describing articles like in the form of Wikipedia, writing it in a formal way uh, or writing news articles or like uh, conversational ability on Reddit. You're taking all these things that people do for free on the internet. Their footprint is there on the internet and putting it in the, in, in, into a generative model like GPT. And then at test time, you can ask the GPT to do things and it becomes economically and commercially valuable, right? In some sense, that, that gave me an insight. Oh, actually, you can think of these language models like agents, uh, even though people don't think of language models as agents because there's no reinforcement learning in it. Technically, there is, right? If you consider every single word has been an action taken by a human human agent. And now the transformer is basically cloning it. It's mm. behavior cloning activity on the internet. So that is the word Alec used when describing his research. It's like behavior clone human work on the internet that already exists into a large model. And then the large model becomes like an intelligent agent at this time. And the more diverse data you throw at the model, the more likely that it will do like amazing things. So this gives gave me a new insight of, for example, language models are agents uh, that can write uh, creative writing. Uh, Copilot, GitHub Copilot is basically a writing assistant, but you can think of it as an agent that just learned to code, right? By, by behavior cloning human code on GitHub. That's the same thing that Autopilot does too. Autopilot is basically cloning human driving. And... Uh, Dali is cloning artists. So at the end of the day, like the end game for creating intelligent agents like robots or any RL agent is to clone behavior. The, the only thing that you need to go beyond just cloning is also understand what it means to solve a task. 
you do want to know like what does it mean to complete a task what does it mean to not complete a task you you want to know the notion of a reward too rather than just saying oh yeah humans did this thing i'll also do the same thing so it was just a it the inspiration was okay like the current generative models are great at cloning how do you make rl more like just cloning so there are two parts to it then one is transformer and the other is supervised learning and then how do you turn rl into supervised learning one way to turn rl into supervised learning was using the upside down reinforcement learning formulation i think that was proposed by schmid huber so i was already aware of that paper but then that was not general enough it it just took the goal as an embedding and then uh, get, took the current state and action and tried to decide uh, what what took the current state and the goal uh, and and just formulated it like the um, goal condition reinforcement learning setup so that would still have the same issues that come with scaling um, you know these markovian models right so you do want something that's more general i just combined these two insights together to get get the idea and i started working on it myself uh with uh, i think lily lily chen um and then later igor mordash uh, he's he's the other senior author on the paper said he was looking into bert models for rl as like some kind of pre-trained representations that can be leveraged for any new task uh in the sense that you pre-train a large bird and then you find you into any new task you have with with another undergrad named uh, Kevin Lu so he's he was very yeah, but that project wasn't really panning out as much because it's in in general nobody's really shown very successful uh behavior pre-training in RL i think people have shown good successful results on the pre-training the vision encoder and then and showing that it can accelerate the learning on a new task from pixels but uh no one's really shown something where you pre-train an action decoder or something and then you throw a new task and it just works so but the stack they were building was very useful for us to like you know it's just the same transformers this that the masking is left to right versus like random masking things like that so we just decided to combine and that, that led to that paper That's super interesting. Okay, I'm now I'm really glad I asked you this. You said that people weren't able to make these unsupervised models work with new tasks. Is that right? And what you were doing is with decision transformer is not a new task. Is that what the difference is or why wasn't it not why was unsupervised not working before and 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 you made it work? Yeah, so so to clarify, I'm not saying decision transformer made unsupervised learning work for RL. Uh that's not true. What I mean to say is something like BERT is very hard to get to work for reinforcement learning where you pre-train a very large model and then you find into any new task it's not clear exactly what you should pre-train and fine tuning is dark magic by itself like you have to figure out so many hyperparameters like the learning rate of the atom uh optimizer and how you decay the learning rate and um what is the batch size um if you use a large batch size you might overfit quickly on a task where uh you have very few uh, like new examples this is a problem in nlp itself like how to efficiently fine tune you don't even need to ask for reinforcement learning right like it's just going to be even worse given it it's it's hard to even train it from scratch on the other hand something like gpts are cool like you don't have to fine tune if you have a great model zero shot or few shot will work at test time right 
So that is the advantage of training these large language models. Like you, you can ask, like, if you had a choice, if you had 100 GPUs, 1,000 GPUs, would you go for training a GPT or would you go for training a BERT or a TFI-like model? And the answer is you'd go for training a GPT because of the flexibility it offers you at test time. If you wanted to fine-tune, you could still fine-tune from it. But there are so many other capabilities like zero-shot completions, few-shot completions, prompting, prompt engineering, the, the natural sequentiality it offers you. So, so that made me think, okay, that would be even more of a drastic result if you just show that a pure GPT works on rather than saying, hey, yeah, here are some checkpoints. If you want to do your RL research, like you can take it from use it. That, that, that in my opinion, wouldn't have been as impactful because um, at the end of the day, what are these RL tasks? It's just a bunch of simulation uh, benchmarks that people created for like, you know, quick results, right? Like you know, impact for paper is more if, it forces people to rethink the paradigm itself rather than serving as a checkpoint for writing more papers for other students, right? I felt like having a pure language model stack would be better for that. So I got to admit, I did not uh, appreciate the magnitude of the uh, contribution with, with Decision Transformers when the paper came out. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, but I, but with the, way, the way you're talking about it now, a very different paradigm for RL, it makes it sound like a much bigger deal. I'm glad I got to hear hear that directly from you. Can we talk about the experiments to make this a little more concrete? Yeah, for sure. So far, I've been thinking about this as supervised learning, and I, I, I don't understand how it could ever, why could it ever do better than the training data, or is that even important anymore? Yeah, um, I think that's pretty important uh, to be able to do better than the training data. But for what it's worth, I want to clarify that that is a nature of conditioning on the reward and not because we're using a transformer or anything. There is a Twitter thread where somebody points, like I actually pointed out myself that, uh, this was a trick used in training alpha star. Oriel Vinyals actually, uh, Oriel Vinyals and his team were building alpha star and the way alpha star was trained was it, uh, it, it actually conditions a lot on uh, the previous uh, like like states. As, uh, but in addition to that, it, it, it conditions on the opponent skill level, how many units you got to build uh, based on that. And, and, and you know, the, there's like a pointer network that attends to all these entities. So this was there so that at test time, they could adapt to the opponent by predicting its skill level and using using that information to condition on for the agent to be more adaptive and flexible to what opponent it's playing with. I have to say, yeah, the, these were also ideas that inspired me when we built the architecture. It was more like a, subconsciously I remembered this, but it was like two years ago uh, when I was uh, like there at DeepMind, so I, for, I actually forgot to credit them in the paper. Yeah, you, you can extrapolate beyond the training data if you train the agent to do that first in the first place, right? Like the agent can only extrapolate also, what does extrapolate mean? Like you, you want to tell the agent what task it's even doing in the first place, so that at test time you can give it new tasks and it can potentially do that. In some sense, like if the agent has understood what it means to get a particular score, then it can potentially get a score that's never seen in the training data, and that score can be bigger than the maximum score in the training data. This is just I, I just mean this in a funny way, but it's slightly conscious, you know. <laughs> If the agent has understood what it even means to achieve a certain score, whether it be good or bad, 
you can ask it to get a higher score than whatever score it's training the, seen in the training data. I'm not saying this works reliably that, oh yeah, we've solved like an incredibly amazing problem that given a data set of human trajectories, uh, you can always ensure decision transformer will like get a score better than the best human in the training data. That's no, it, it only works on one or two benchmarks, I think. And uh, there's still a lot more work to do there, but it's exciting. The capabilities are pretty cool. And so this is even without uh, any mechanism like the argmax in Q learning, which is which, yeah. which is how the ar- yeah. algorithm tries to keep maximizing its its return. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty it's amazing. Like you, yeah, you just say yeah uh, to get a score of one, you do these sequence of actions. To get a score of five, you do these sequence of actions. And uh, to get a score of hundred, you get you do these. And at test time, you just say get a score of thousand. Maybe it does something more or less similar to what it's seen for a get a score of 100, but potentially slightly better than that because it has implicitly learned what what does it mean to do better for 100 relative to 5. So it might take that behavior and paste it for relative to 100 over that. So, you know, and, and, and that's why it's a paradigm shift because you don't have to do all these dynamic programming of policy gradients. You just let the deep neural network figure out what it means to optimized long-term reward. So now I'm looking at a chart in your paper. Figure three is showing different results. And what it shows is that in some results, decision transformer gets about the same as TD learning. And in some some cases it does better. And in some cases it does a lot better, uh, which is surprising to me, I guess, when I looked at this, because I'm like, there's no argmax. How is it doing this? Mm-hmm. I was a little surprised that TD learning is represented by CQL. Would there be other algorithms that might do better to, to represent TD learning here? Yeah, there might be. There might be. Uh, and I think that's an active area of research, right? Many people are working on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but to me, those are not interesting at all. Like I, I okay. would say um, you can spend another five genera- like generations of PhD students or you can spend um, 100,000 generations of uh you know, NVIDIA GPUs and 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 transformers are, are going to be the 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 NVIDIA GPU route or like, you know, coming up with more and more fancy Q-learning algorithms for offline RL is going to be the PhD route. And I, I mean, you can, you can, you can, yeah, you can decide to take a bet yourself. Actually, there was a funny comment uh, right after the paper came out. There was a Reddit post in the paper. Somebody posted it on Reddit and I saw a funny comment where somebody's like, you know, you should just go go buy more Nvidia stock. <laughs> and uh, yeah, actually, if you did that, you could have got like become richer for sure. But j- just saying that, you know, like more and more Q learning algorithms you come up with, potentially they're going to beat decision transformer. Um, I think some people even publish papers beating our scores. But the point is like we we didn't even spend time coming up with a new algorithm or hacking the transformer to work really well or anything. Uh, it's it, in fact like if you look at Kevin's code release, it just imports hugging face transformers and just runs it on the trajectory data. It's that simple. It, it also, in my opinion, it also reduces the barrier to entry to RL. I'm talking about it from the perspective of myself as well as many people I've heard from that. Oh, RL is so hard. Like you gotta like actually uh, like take take a, like a bunch of classes. Uh, read David Silver's lectures or like, you know, the Sutton and Bardo book, which is super hard to do, all the exercises there. And by the time, like, it's uh, I, I've lost my energy. It's been like two, three months. I'm hardly made any progress. On the other hand, like, if you work on computer vision or NLP, uh, you just import, like, hugging face transformers or 
like you know PyTorch image models. Uh, immediately take a data set, like label it yourself, train a model. You feel good. You feel like you're making progress, right? Uh, the dopamine is there. Uh, the iteration speed is a lot faster. How do you do that for reinforcement learning? Uh, it's I think like inventing even more complicated Q learning algorithms doesn't seem like something that actually caters to the need of like bringing more people to the field and making faster progress, right? It, it actually seems in the reverse direction of that. On the other hand, doing something like decision transformer that just makes RL more and more like NLP or super, uh, computer vision is likely to make things easier for people. The amount of RL algorithms is exploding exponentially and every there's variants of subvariants. Should we expect that trend to continue or do we expect that ultimately we'll converge on a family or a set of families? Are you saying that in one future possibility is that uh, we converge back to something simpler like a decision transformer? I would even go even further than that. The algorithm is in the weights of the transformer. Uh, you cannot write the algorithm. People think they can actually write the algorithm themselves. Um, that's not possible. And they should they should learn to be more humble. I think people think like they can write the ultimate oral algorithm that will solve AI on a whiteboard, uh, write a paper on it, and that'll be the answer. Uh, that's not true. In fact, like David Silver has a very interesting point about this, like how he was very unhappy after AlphaGo was done, even though it's such a legendary moment, uh, because he was just somehow like not happy that oh, it, it bootstrapped from human data, you know, the human Go games, and like, you know, after that, it does self-play. And AlphaZero was like removing every component of hard coding in that. So mm-hmm. it, it figured out for itself what it means to win and what it means to be better. And of course, that 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 is something you can only do uh, in, in, you know, like in, like zero sum, a perfect information game. But the same, th- that's what I would say for like, you know, c- coming up with more clever online, offline oral algorithms versus just trying to make a decision transformer really work at scale. This is, this is the route. And also the, we need the generalization abilities of language, code, things like that. We, if you want to build an AGI, we, we need the thing that uses all possible strings in one model. So think about like a future GPT, N plus one, that's trained on like trajectories, that's trained on internet data, that's trained on videos. That's likely to be more of a solution to the RL problem than, uh, you know, like like beating the score on uh, Mujoko with like uh, CQL++. If we look at the two ideas of transformers and RL, there must be quite a few different ways to combine these. Obvious way to me seems to use use the transformer as a function approximator and then use more conventional algorithms. Is that also a reasonable approach, do you think? Or is it really the self-supervised mechanism that's like the, the important bit here? I think it's reasonable. A lot of people are writing papers on uh, taking out the CNNs uh, in, in, you know, in like vision-based robotics and using a vision transformer instead. Yeah, that, that sounds interesting. Uh, that, that's definitely going to have the short-term progress. Because anytime you replace the backbone architecture with a different stack, like it's likely to proliferate across like anyone using any CNN anywhere, right? So that said, I I I I think like the paradigm shift is more important in the long run. I mean, I, I you tell me, like, is it fun to like just not understand Q learning well or like all these like double Q learning? You know, all, all, like there's a host of papers like that dueling Q learning. Um, do you even remember that? Like, like, the, like, oh, where do you put the max? There are two maxes. There's an outer max and an inner max. Uh, and then the soft Q learning has like an exponential and a, approximations for that. 
for the for the denominator it, it, it's not even fun to like just spend uh one year or two years just reading all these things and going nowhere in terms of like actual performance on the task that you care about on the other hand you just say hey I, i'm just going to import hugging face i'm going to create a data loader for my trajectories i'm just going to scale the rewards in some like normalize them so that they're like in zero to one range or whatever percentiles i'm just going to treat the problem like a kaggle contest and i'm just going to leverage a transformer i won't even need to think about the optimization uh, you know all that part has been figured out for language models so more or less it's going to work for any string in future you might be able to use a diffusion model much easier right you you make progress in like few hours you get something you get an agent that actually works uh, and you know how to debug debugging is just like debugging supervised learning you tell me yourself like which which potentially is going to be used by more people and have more chances of success in the long run the diversity and range of all these complicated mechanisms people have come up with is absolutely incredible and and kind of very strange like you don't see that in other parts of uh of machine learning to the same extent and in and that was kind of one of my motivations for doing this podcast is when i was starting to see this endless stream of these things coming out and these endless variations of, of algorithms I felt a little discouraged. I felt, how am I going to keep on top of this? The only way I could think to do it was to talk to people who really know often and be able to understand what which of these is important. But uh, the trend doesn't seem to stop the continuing diversity. That, that is not going to stop. And I, I, I don't think it should stop because, uh, I mean, people have the free will of freedom to do any kind of research, right? Like, I would say that um, what you're feeling is more the norm than the exception and just like you know the, the assisting basil says right in the long term there's no misalignment between economic value and uh, like 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 customer value so the research you do like has to cater to everyone and not just like uh, uh, like like a small uh, community of like you know really well-read phd students because at the end like the real value is only created when people take your algorithms and like build robots or customer service agents, things like that. Those are not ideally going to be done by PhD students, right? Like very good software engineers who can quickly like bootstrap existing ML repos will likely do that. For them, it's going to be easier if, if, if because they all already know like GPTs and stuff. So I, I'm, I, yeah, the, the, I, I, don't, I don't think what you're saying is actually the exception. Uh, it, it's more the norm that people are kind of tired of just seeing uh, countless new variants of Q-learning algorithms, like promising like one, one or two percent improvement over existing ones over like four or five random seats. It's kind of boring to see such papers. So can we talk about where something like Decision Transformer is most relevant and maybe what are the limitations like is it is it really a, a relegated to tasks where we're in the in the huge data regime ideally yes ideally that should be the regime it should really shine that's not going to be a problem i think uh like any industry where you're like building a uh, agent you're most like like you you ideally want to leverage a transformer when you have a lot of data right that's it you might not need reward data as much as uh, like like you think, you might be able to leverage a really good pre-trained model or like a language model that's just trained at a trajectory level without reward information. You could fine tune it to, to like a small set of trajectories that actually have reward information. 
So just like how we've solved the data efficiency problems with regular la- like language or code or you know computer vision, the same same set of like ideas can apply here. In terms of like shortcomings, I still think it's not there yet in terms of really beating the best human engineered algorithms on 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 these benchmarks. That was not our point either. Like uh, the point is, oh, you know, without much tuning, it's already like pretty good. But it would be nice if it's made some made to be a very reliable algorithm that works out of like, something like scikit-learn uh, logistic regression. You know, it just take it and it just works. It would be nice to make it like that, such that even if you don't get an amazing performance, you get some reasonably good model. To the extent that if it doesn't work, it's more like an issue in your data. If you can get it to that such a stage, then that would be really cool. Integrating it with language or code, where you can ask a mod, uh, agent to iteratively change the code based on your feedback that you gave, that would be really awesome. Iterative debugging or getting a certain score on a Kaggle contest, those kind of things would be super awesome to see. I think robotics, like you, you basically train an agent given a goal, you, you just train an agent to complete the actions for that goal, and you keep telling the robot like, hey, you know, you already did this. How about, how about like actually getting closer to the object? You, you give feedback in between and it can take your what it's done previously and your current feedback into account and try to like change its trajectory, stuff like that. Uh, think about reward signals itself as like being replaced by language feedback. That would be super cool to have. So uh, there are so many more vari- variations of this model that people haven't really explored yet and I'm hoping to explore. It's also a matter of like, yeah, the amount of compute you have access to and, you know, being able to try these ideas needs like good computer or good foundation models to build with. So that that, that needs a little bit of time to change too. Let's say this uh, this approach really does take over the tasks where there are large data sets, then maybe there's still room for other approaches for small data problems like we might face in say medicine. Yeah, yeah, uh, potentially. Though I, I do hope there's like a large pre-trained model for medicine too. I think that would be awesome. If you can leverage like insights across different medical problems and bake that into one model, that might be better model than just training a small model on a small data set. Mm-hmm. We, we haven't reached those points yet, but uh, it's good to be optimistic about it. So Jan LeCun, the, the storied researcher from Facebook yeah. AI research describes a cake with the cake yeah. the icing and the cherry with the cake as, as unsupervised learning and the icing is supervised and the cherry is RL. How do you relate that metaphor to what you're doing here with Decision yeah. Transformer? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So the cake is in some sense like the, 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 the foundation to understand the world, to perceive and understand the world, right? Decision Transformer is the cherry. It doesn't look at the cake part. So, for example, you take the Atari experiment in a decision transformer. It processes the pixels uh, in the form of like taking the frame um, and and getting a latent embedding from the CNN, and then the transformer runs on top of those latents. I think the cake handles the part of like what is the CNN that's used to encode the latent. The cherry is the part where you're figuring out okay, once you process your sensory stream, how do you actually decide actions at a, at a motor level? Uh, if you look at Jan LeCun's talks, there is a part that he always says, like, we haven't really figured out how to do action hierarchies 
like learning new primitives, motor primitives, action hierarchies. That is the part decision transformer gets at. And as for the actual cake itself, we need a good, we need to build really good representation learning and generative models of high dimensional sensory data. See, like the work I did on CPC uh, addresses that, curl is addressing that, uh, video GPT. So th those are those are more in that space. Decision Transformer doesn't have much to do with the cake itself. It has more to do with the cherry. Another way of looking at it is that you've kind of transcended the cake altogether, the, the three different components, because the Decision Transformer really combines all these things in a way that maybe yeah. is, is yeah. before Hopefully, they've been yeah. more separate. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, yeah, you, you, you can build a really good um, video model and then use that as a foundation model to like fine tune by adding rewards. And so that it, it kind of like builds the entire cake in one large giant transformer. I think that would be awesome. But yeah, like, look, I, I'm not, I'm, I think I'm obviously saying a lot more than what the paper does. So the paper itself hasn't shown any, any result in that level. So last I checked, I saw uh, 91 citations, I think, on Google Scholar. Um, so people are building on this. Any comments on on things that people have, have already built on this? Sounds like you have definitely ideas for the future, but in terms of what's been done so far yeah, or what's in progress, any comments on that? Yeah, uh, I saw some good papers, but uh, most of the citations are basically like, oh, yeah, um, offline RL has been applied with the transformer. Uh, or, or like transformers are awesome and they're beginning to be used in RL or like some people just use that as a baseline in their new offline RL algorithm. So I, I, I'm not so happy with like the citations itself. Like, I mean, the sure, like getting hundred citations in less than a year is awesome, but it, it's not like they're like, like genuine, like genuinely building a better model has happened yet. Hmm. My feeling is people should just try to make a much larger model with a lot more trajectories and train it and that, that would be the real deal uh it's boring uh, very likely not going to get a nearest paper or something unless you know you spend a lot of time in figuring out like new capabilities that come out of such models but that is more likely the correct thing to do the, there there are some interesting like work done done by people in peter's lab i think like they there's some work that tried to do a decision transformer kind of thing for uh, robots, like like figuring out like what set of primitives to take, yeah, and and, and like leveraging pre-trained APIs like Copilot or uh, GPT-3. So fi figuring out how to integrate language in a decision transformer would be super cool. But yeah, I, I'm, there's no particular work that I'm like able to highlight as saying, oh yeah, this is an incredibly awesome follow-up. Yeah, citations are sometimes misleading, right? Like they, they you you might get a lot of citations, but it's not like people are actually uh, like 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 really building new variants of your model. But there are there, there was like one work from Shane Gu, I think, from Google Brain that pre-trained on Wikipedia and then fine-tuned on a decision transformer and showed some gains. That was kind of interesting. So yeah, people are getting at the right right ideas for sure. So we've talked about the difference between the RL classical RL paradigm and the supervised learning paradigm, and and the decision transformer kind of combines those. What about the axis of model free and model based? Yeah, it seems like there's sort of like an implicit model in here. Yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, decision transformer. Uh, yeah, it's uh, the definition of model based and model free are like you know, it's so hard. Like different people have different ways to think about it. 
to me like if you just say yeah model based is like anything that predicts the future state given the previous state and actions then decision transformer is not a model based rl method but if you say model based is anything that just models the future and what part of the future you choose to model is up to you then decision transformer is a model based model like like rl algorithm we intentionally chose not to predict the future pixels or future states because in some tasks it's likely to help you and some tasks it's not likely to help you and then you'll have to hard code like what percentage of the loss that you want to be allocated for predicting the future state and that will change for different environments so that makes it like not so clean as it is now but if you do have a, a like let's say some another version another loss for not just predicting the future actions but also the future states and future rewards then that just becomes the ultimate world model right like it's just an exact gpt mm-hmm. that uh, and and that is model based so now you can easily change dt to be model based by just removing the masking on the state losses mm-hmm. it might need the right kind of latent space to predict the future uh, it's not ideal for you to just predict the future pixels in atari uh just think about it in terms of the loss function right like you'll have one single dimension for predicting the future action and you'll have like 84 by 84 dimensions for predicting one future state so most of the compute of the models can be allocated to like those um 6000 pixels 6500 400 pixels for the the frame and just like one dimension for the action and it might, what is the point in having a model that just like fills up the background of the future state but takes the wrong action mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that's not very useful so if you could do this in a good latent abstraction where there is like a good latent space for the state and you predict the latent then that's pretty cool and that's what like the ideas like dali 2 are getting at like you you just like learn a prior on the latent space and then you decode it with the diffusion upsampler those are really cool uh, i think those ideas should be investigated for haruto you want to uh, move to video gpt now video gpt is what the name says it's it's a gpt for video models basically how do you learn a generative model for video you can't just throw a straight gpt transformer at it at a pixel level you could but it, it needs a lot more compute and memory you learn a latent abstraction of the video that downsamples the video into a latent vector and then you learn a gpt at the latent level and then you upsample those latents back into the pixels to actually like create a video and you train such a model on a large enough video dataset and it becomes a pretty good world model for you given the fr- initial frame it can predict the future and so on so how do you evaluate a video model there are metrics in general evaluating g- generative models is really hard there are two ways to evaluate video gpt like models uh one is just the likelihood it gets in the latent space because it's you're still training a gpt on the latent tokens so you could measure the bits per dimension the log likelihood in the latent space uh but that's not a very useful metric because these bits are like not perceptible bits so one thing you could do is measure something called a freshet video distance just like how people measure freshet in, uh inception distance for 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 images where they take like uh a lot of samples from the model uh they put it into the latent space of a pre-trained inception architecture uh, that's just an image classifier and they take a bunch of samples from the actual data distribution too and then they compare the statistics between these two batches uh in terms of first order and second order 
and come up with a metric. So you could do the same thing for a video too. Take samples from the model, you take samples from the actual video data set, uh, take like a pre-trained video classifier, like a kinetics classifier, and uh, take the latent embedding of that and, and just uh, co compute the statistics in that space. It is not the best metric in the sense that it's not like you optimize for FVD and you optimize for human, uh, like what, like like you know, judgments of what is what seems like uh, something that would you know count for the Turing test of like, oh yeah, is this video from a uh, like a YouTube or a generative model? Like it's not it's not as good as getting like high correlation with that. But you know, we're not even at a point in video generation where a human would find it hard to say whether that's this video is from a AI or from a human until we get there. I think optimizing for FVD sounds fine. So I guess with image generation, uh, GAN papers and such, it's very convenient to just show some, some images. Um, we're so used to evaluating faces that any, any discrepancy in faces is very easy for our eyes to, to, uh, detect. Well, it's getting harder and harder, right? Like, uh, people say uh, it's hard for them to know if like a Dolly image is from Dolly or from a human artist these days. Uh, you can't, it is easy to find out though. Like if you actually look at the upsampling artifacts, like in Dolly, um, you could actually like zoom in and like figure out like, oh yeah, this doesn't seem like something a human would have done. But GAN papers also use F FIDs to compare, like you look at StyleGAN, they, they always report the FIDs that they get on the new data set. It's a good metric. So yeah, videos, video papers can use FVDs. What do you predict in terms of how far away are we from video GPT uh, type systems joining the other ranks of the other, uh, the other types of mediums in terms of really high quality video being generated? Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it's likely to happen. I think if the folks like, yeah, like, like uh, Dolly uh, is pretty awesome, and so that not, nothing really stops people from building something like that for video. It requires a lot of compute and effort and time. Yeah, I mean, video GPT is not that good in terms of quality. Uh, it's more like an idea paper with some reasonable results. But to to actually have like a video Dolly level, like 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 a video that you can actually upload to YouTube, and people might not be able to say it's completely AI generated. I think uh, it, it's very likely to happen. Okay, like if you were to take a bet that it's not going to happen in the next five years, you're likely to lose that bet. Hmm. But whether it's going to happen in one year or two years from now or like something like that, it's not very clear. The amount of information in a video versus these other mediums, like text, for example, is a page of text is such a small amount of information compared to even a few seconds of video that I wonder where this problem, the video generation problem lies compared to the current levels of compute that we have available for the current generation of, of compute and GPUs that we have to have the capacity to, to really do this at a, at a high quality? So, so in terms of bits, you do get more bits from a video, but in terms of useful bits, it probably is not on, not, not on a extremely high order of magnitude uh, because there's a lot of redundancy in a video, right? Like just take a frame itself. Uh, you don't need to ingest 1K by 1K frames to a model. Uh, to learn a representation of it, like probably 64 by 64 is fine. Like most of the information can be preserved that like a latent embedding on top of that can still understand what exists in the frame. Uh, in terms of like temporal information, like you don't need to ingest it at the same frames per second that's needed for watching a high quality video on YouTube, right? Like 
16 FPS or like 24 FPS, probably not needed for, for, for an AI to train a model on top of that. It, it is needed for the generative quality to produce such a model. Yeah, you do need to produce like a 20 FPS model. Uh, like, like it, it, for example, if you were to produce uh, like a like a 10 second video, uh, you don't just want to produce 10 frames, right? You you do you want to produce something like 200 or like 240 frames, whatever FPS you're happy viewing on 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 YouTube. Mm. And similarly, you you don't want to produce 64 by 64 frames. You do want to produce something like 720 or 1080. So so that already makes your output dimension incredibly large, but that's not what stops people from actually solving the video generation problem because you to, to, to truly model the useful bits that's the hard part uh, and, and if you actually have access to the useful bits then the same gpts that work on text will work on video too the difficult part is figuring out what are the useful bits um like like you can't hard code it like you can't uh say, hey, yeah, I'll just take the motion vectors and the uh, reference frame, just like how MPEG, uh, you know, encode, uh, codecs are coded. Um, you could potentially do that, right? You just take uh, you, you just take the source code of like a, a great video compression algorithm, like, like you know, actually get whatever is uh, communicated in terms of the uh, codecs um, and, and learn a generative model on that and then use the same um, decoder in the codex so, so that like, you're computationally like much better, but your video generation, the generative model on those bits might actually be pretty hard to potentially model. So it's not clear it, 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 and, and, and it might actually be limiting because these codecs are designed for just like preserving as much information as possible and not really learning anything semantic, but, but the progress is being made, right? Like you look at Dolly, it's awesome. It's, it's learning a generative model at a latent level uh, VQBAE itself is like that. Video GPT uses a VQBAE, and VQBAE is like learn a downsample representation of your input and learns a generative model on that. So we are already seeing signs of life there uh, in terms of how to do it. Um, but once we have learned the ex like really correct representation to learn a generative model on top of, uh, that's going to be the moment where video generation really shines. Uh, in video GPT, we use the VQBAE, and that was the same stack used for Codex or Copilot. So, sorry, uh, Jukebox and other like 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 you know Aaron Vandenil's work on like VQBAE two that produced these 1024 by 1024 images. It, it's been shown to work for images. It's not been shown to work reliably for videos yet. But but uh, I would imagine that someone will figure this out. So VQVAE is a, is is a discrete VAE, is that right? Yeah. For for, for generating yeah, discrete exactly. samples, there's a code book, so there's like a some kind of limited uh, capacity that it has. Yeah, it it is lossy. Um, you can think of video, uh, sorry, VQVAE is as like a lear, a neural network learned version of JPEG or MPEG. It's basically doing the same thing. It's trying to pack in the bits in the latent space and then go back from those bits to the actual input, uh, minimize the reconstruction loss. In, in a JPEG, you're gonna hard code these components by saying, yeah, the way you downsample is like, you, you, you take these eight by eight blocks of the image, uh, and then you uh, run like discrete cosine transform on top of that, and you quantize those coefficients. And then you run an inverse DCT, and then you uh, chunk everything together again, and you get back the image. 
right? And which, uh, how many bits you quantize in your DCT decide like the lossiness of your JPEG. And that also gives you the compression ratio. Just like that, VQBAs have like, oh, how many bits you're using in the code book? Uh, do you use like 10 bits or eight bits? And that decides how lossy it is. And based on that, you get like pretty good like reconstructions. So it, it, it is doing the thing that JPEGs are doing, but in a more neural way. And that's cool. But uh, you also want something that's even more semantic than VQ. Ideas like unclip are getting there. Uh, like like the Dolly 2 is basically taking the clip vector and then building a generative model on top of that. So that clip is even more semantic than a VQ. But then what is like what is the clip of video? That's not clear. These are these are like difficult difficult questions right now. Uh, nobody knows the answers to these yet. And uh, you're right. You do you do need a lot of compute for making video work. And I I honestly don't know uh, if if uh, if if like somebody would make it work very fast. But I think the likelihood that nobody makes it work in five years from now is very low. It seems to me there's some kind of tension, like you said, with the semantics. Like I guess in in RL there's the uh, the bullet pixel problem where you know there could be just one pixel moving across the screen that's such a small detail of the image but it ends up changing the plot of the game you, the, the character dies and so when you're doing this downsampling and upsampling how do we know if we're not um, missing some of the detail that's so critical to the to the semantics of the video like someone has a tiny little pin that they're popping the balloons with and maybe that gets lost in the downsampling is there something causal needed to make this actually meaningful? Um, maybe. Uh, maybe some notion of temporal consistency and motion is necessary. But I, I don't know, right? Like somebody could make it work with just a single latent vector. It's difficult to say it hey, is not going to work if unless you have an existence proof that, uh, sorry, unless you have a theoretical proof that it cannot work, it's difficult to say. Because uh, the way things work in deep learning is existence proofs, basically. Oh, yeah, I made it work. Here is existence. So far, it doesn't exist yet, but uh, proving that it cannot exist is much harder. But it'll be nice to have more structured latents for sure that have like some notion of optical flow, like temporal latent and then uh, image latent in the form of like the initial frame. And then a generative model just like decides the initial canvas to paint and like the motions to like you know encode and the decoder just figures things out that would be super cool to have so in terms of um moving images we've also seen some some awesome results in in the nerf line of work can you say anything about the difference or similarity between what's happening here and what's happening there yeah nerf is trying to make uh less use of neural decoders and more use of uh volumetric rendering algorithms. So it's in some sense offloading some compute from a uh, neural decoder to something that actually um, is physically consistent in terms of viewing the same scene from different views geometrically. Um, so whether that would be part of like future generative models that uh, is not clear yet. But it, it'll be nice to have something like that uh, because it, it definitely uh, requires less model capacity than a uh, pure video GPT-like model um, and, and might actually be more consistent physically. So that 
makes it like more reliable in terms of like building a technology around it. So it's pretty exciting. How to actually combine the large representation learning models with something like NERF is still like something people are exploring. Then moving on to some more general issues. As a research scientist, uh, can you talk about how you plan your research and your roadmap, you know, what to pursue, the explore, exploit trade-off in your in planning through your research? So I'm currently really in um, exploitation mode. Like there's stuff that already works and um, there's like a certain for open AI formula of doing things and I'm just trying to do it like that. Exploration is uh, more risky, of course, right? Like you, you might end up with something amazing, but the probability of that is low. But the value function is much higher. Exploitation is um, value function might be low, but probability of success is high. You ideally, you want to be in the period of optimality between probability of success and value function. Yeah, like you do want to have a big cake, but you want to eat it too, kind of. It's hard. I'm, I'm, it's not like I've succeeded multiple times to tell you exactly how to do it. And I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out myself. Um, but if you if you, you would ask me whether I'm exploring or exploiting right now, I'm definitely exploiting. Um, Arvind, is there anything else you want to share with our audience uh, today? AI is really exciting. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's overwhelming to see like every day people making so much progress uh, across different like, you know, companies and research labs. If you're more junior, I would say uh, don't get discouraged and just try to like work on the fundamentals and pick something you really uh, can dedicate like 80 hours a week on it and keep making progress. If yeah, if if you're interested in doing a PhD or something like that, it's worth really thinking hard about whether you should be working on deep learning, uh, or, or or even if you work on deep learning, doing it the same manner as OpenAI or Google, may maybe something worth thinking about because uh, the more and more clear it's getting that you need large models to get amazing generalization results at test time, it's hard for you to have an impact outside of what people are doing already. So it's good to like rethink the game if you're in a place where you don't have as much compute. You need to like figure out a new formula or like look at some places that people are not already looking into. Arvind Srinivas, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight with us here at Talk RL. Thank you, Robin.